I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, April 3rd, 2018. Coming up, we'll discuss hacking the planet. It's called geoengineering, manipulating the global climate to curb global warming. Our guests are Dr. Lisa Dilling, an associate professor of environmental studies at CU Boulder, and Dr. David Fahey, a physicist at NOAA. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. If you haven't eaten breakfast yet, hold off on that, as you might want to cut your short stack to one pancake from three after hearing this. Scientists have long known that restricting calories can fend off physiological signs of aging. They've studied fruit flies, roundworms, rodents, and even people, enough to show that chronically slashing intake by about a third can yield many health benefits, and in some cases, you might live longer. Granted, this regime can also make you anorexic, but that's for other studies. In the new study, which was led by Doug Seals, an integrative physiologist at CU Boulder, it found that when people consume a natural dietary supplement called nicotinamide riboside, or NR, every day, it mimics caloric restriction. Namely, it kickstarts the same key chemical pathways responsible for its health benefits. The study found that taking this dietary supplement also tends to improve blood pressure and arterial health, particularly in humans with mild hypertension. The study included 24 lean and healthy men and women ages 55 to 79 from the Boulder area. Half of them were given placebo for six weeks, then took a 500 milligram twice daily dose of the supplement NR. The other half took NR for the first six weeks, followed by placebo. The researchers noted that the study is a small pilot one, not a definitive one. But they said that the idea is that by supplementing older adults with NR, they could potentially restore something that is lost with aging, and also potentially ramp up the activity of enzymes that are responsible for helping protect our bodies from stress. The study was published last week in the journal Nature Communications. A paper that was also published in the journal Nature a few days ago, had a rather simple and seemingly mundane title, A Galaxy Lacking Dark Matter. However, for astronomers who study how the universe and galaxies formed, it is a most exciting and surprising title indeed. Dark matter is material that does not glow like the stars and gas and dust that we see in our galaxy and throughout the universe, so it has never been directly observed. Its existence has been inferred only by its gravitational effect on the matter that we can see. These observations indicate that there is many more times mass in galaxies than could be explained by the gravity of the visible mass. That mysterious missing mass exerting the additional gravitational force is called dark matter. Many current theories of galaxy formation invoke dark matter as a necessary component to the formation and the stability of galaxies. It's like the peanut butter that holds a PBJ sandwich together and is actually the major component of a galaxy. That is why these recent results are so astonishing. The researchers of this paper found that a galaxy in particular... One galaxy has very little or possibly no dark matter. 
They determined this by measuring the motion of globular clusters, which are giant groups of stars that orbit the galaxy, and they found that the motion of the globular clusters around this particular galaxy are consistent with the gravity from only the visible stars and gas seen in the galaxy. No dark matter is necessary. These results pose a problem, since astronomers now have to figure out how a galaxy can form without dark matter. To determine among various theories and evolutionary scenarios, astronomers are making more extensive studies of this galaxy to find out what's the matter with the dark matter, and are observing similar type galaxies to see if they can find more examples of galaxies missing their missing mass. And there's a lot of matter on the science calendar this week. Two intriguing talks, in fact, compete for the same time slot. Tonight at 7 o'clock on the CU Boulder campus, David Haskell, he's a professor of biology at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee, he'll talk about the most recent, his most recent book. It's called Song of the Trees. It's part meditation, part nature exploration. In the book, Dr. Haskell takes readers to individual trees all around the world, from cities of Manhattan to Jerusalem to forests of Amazonia and the boreal region and to areas on the front lines of climate change, including eroding coastlines and burned mountainsides. In each place, Haskell shows how human history, ecology, and our well-being are intimately intertwined with the lives of forests and trees, and he'll describe how he integrates contemplative, literary, and scientific studies of the natural world. Dr. Haskell's talk will be held from 7 to 8 tonight, April 3rd, and Old Main Chapel on campus. That's at 1600 Pleasant Street in Boulder. Also this evening, you can come down to the Gun Barrel Brewery in Boulder, where you'll learn about some of the mightiest creatures on the planet, microbes, while enjoying microbe-rich locally brewed beer. Noah Ferrer, a microbial ecologist at CU Boulder, will talk about microorganisms that are everywhere in our homes and elsewhere. Most of the household bacteria and fungi are relatively harmless, and some are downright beneficial to our health. We still understand very little about how these microbial communities vary across different geographic regions, or even what factors such as climate or occupants of homes determine what microbes are found where. In his discussion, Professor Führer will highlight two recent projects that leverage the power of citizen science to investigate the microbes in our home. Science on Tap is a monthly opportunity to gather with fellow science enthusiasts in a fun, informal setting, grab a craft beer, and hear an accessible and timely presentation on science and technology given by the scientists themselves. The presentation tonight starts at 6.30 at the Gun Barrel Brewing Company. It's at 7088 Winchester Circle in Boulder. The event is open to the public. For more information, search online for Gun Barrel Brewing Company and under events or look up Science on Tap. And yet another local science event this week. This one's a talk on the climatic and humanitarian impacts of nuclear war. Sadly relevant today, given President Trump's plans to hold talks with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un later this spring. 
On Thursday, April 5th, Dr. Alan Robach, a climatologist at Rutgers University, will be on the CU Boulder campus to discuss a new project. It examines various possible scenarios of nuclear war and their impacts on agriculture in the f- world food supply. Dr. Robuck is conducting a study together with scientists at the University of Colorado and NCAR, the National Center for Atmospheric Research. On the climate front alone, Dr. Robach has said that a nuclear war between any two nations, with each country using 50 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs as airbursts on urban areas, would inject so much smoke from the resulting fires into the stratosphere that the resulting climate change would be unprecedented in recorded human history. On that cheery note, Dr. Robach's talk will begin at 4 o'clock this Thursday. It'll be held at the Ceres Auditorium, Room 338. That's in the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences. For more info and directions, go to ciresco and click on Events. And finally, to top up a busy week in science, this Thursday and Friday, April 5th and 6th at 7 p.m. at the Fisk Planetarium, science educator Jeffrey Bennett will be giving a talk titled Global Warming Demystified. He will discuss the basic science underlying global warming and how the solutions to this huge problem are ones that people of all political persuasions can agree on. The level is suitable for middle school age and up. That's April 5th and 6th at 7 p.m. at the Fisk Planetarium on the CU Boulder campus. You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. So it's tough to wrap one's mind around just how monumental and consequential the problem of climate change is, so dire that scientists and engineers have for years been exploring ways to hack the planet. That is, to manipulate the global climate system enough to dramatically reduce greenhouse gas emissions or to increase the Earth's ability to reflect solar energy. This audacious approach, called geoengineering, only exists because scientists think that behavioral change, industry regulations, international treaties, and national legislation has not done enough, cannot do enough, in fact, to keep us from careening towards catastrophic and irreversible planetary destruction. Our guests today are Colorado scientists who've been given this huge, who've taken this huge challenge, who've given it a lot of thought and some research. Dr. David Fahey, is a physicist at NOAA, that's the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration here in Boulder. He directs the Climate Chemical Sciences Division in the Earth System Research Lab. And Dr. Lisa Dilling is an Associate Professor of Environmental Studies and a Fellow at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences, or CERES, at CU Boulder. Dr. Fahey is in the studio, and Dr. Dilling is on the phone at the university. David, welcome to How on Earth. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for having us. And Lisa, thank you for joining us via phone. I know you've got a class to teach soon. Thank you so much. 
So I wanted to start, um, David, with you, David Fahey. Um, why are you here? Why is this of concern to you? Well, as you uh, mentioned, Susan, I run the chemical sciences division within NOAA. And if you look at NOAA's mission, it's to be stewards of the atmosphere and ocean. And when one talks about hacking the planet, as you mentioned, climate intervention, geoengineering, uh, the atmosphere is, is a major part of a lot of proposals, and in particular, the stratosphere. And so my division within NOAA um, has a long-standing investment in the stratosphere and a continuing investment. So if the stratosphere were to be modified in the, in the, in the hopes of altering climate, we would want to be at the table. In fact, we should be head of the table in terms of uh, looking after the stratosphere. Are we doing the right thing? Will what we intend to happen actually happen? Yeah, and just for those who may not know the difference between stratosphere, atmosphere, etc., just uh, distill it a bit. So the air we're breathing is all in the troposphere. That's the lowest part of the stratosphere. I'm sorry, the atmosphere. A few miles above the surface is the start of the stratosphere. That's where the ozone layer is. That's one of the main topics we've had over the last decades is uh, looking after the the ozone layer and making sure that human activities uh, don't alter it in, um, inappropriately. And Lisa Dilling, I uh, want to ask you, too, you do different sort of research, but um, what, what brings you here and what makes you concerned about this? Um, thanks, Susan. I got interested in this topic about 10 years ago or so, and I, um, I, I, I've done a lot of work on things like carbon cycling, which is the movement of carbon dioxide through the Earth's system, and um, saw that scientists that I knew and respected were really starting to get interested in this idea of geoengineering, and I was, I was very surprised because to me it sounded almost like science fiction, um, the <laughs> idea of manipulating the climate at a global scale very deliberately, but uh, but very serious people were looking at it and starting to look at it, and so I got very interested in that in that topic as well, especially from the side of how how do we look at this as a society and how do we decide what kinds of mechanisms are appropriate and allowable to actually do both, but whether it's the stratosphere or whether it's things like removing carbon dioxide directly from the atmosphere, which is the other big form of um, geoengineering that gets discussed. And there are different definitions. Obviously, it's a huge topic. It's a hugely controversial topic. Um, not everyone agrees on any one definition. David Fahey, in your, in your mind, so what, what defines or should define geoengineering? Well, it, it's usually in one of two categories. The first ad directly addresses the problem, and that's carbon dioxide removal, carbon dioxide being the principal climate warming gas that's emitted by humans. And so there are various schemes for removing the CO2 that we've already let into the atmosphere. The other option is to change the amount of heat that the Earth takes up. And the way we would do that is increase the reflectivity of the Earth system. Um, they call it albedo modification. Uh, one way we know how to do this is to put uh, stratospheric aerosols in the stratosphere like volcanoes do. So volcanoes have already basically run the experiment as a natural process. The in other, fact, that's probably where a lot of this began, right, is looking at, oh, my Lord, yes, look at the effects yes. of Pinatubo and others. That's right. There's a large scientific investment in trying to, to, to assessing what Pinatubo, for example, did to the atmosphere. 
And then there's marine cloud brightening doing changing the cloudiness nearer the surface to increase the reflectivity of the planet. So those are the main categories that uh, people talk about. There's also some ocean modifications that are occasionally mentioned. Right. And before we get into some of the examples, actually, and the cost benefits there are of those, I just want to back up a bit. And David Fahey ask you, I mean, why are we even considering such an audacious and consequential thing as so-called hacking the planet this way? Well, it's a good point, Susan. You mentioned at the beginning that uh, there may not be a lot of confidence that we will do the right thing in terms of being able to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions and the abundance in the atmosphere. So the way I think of climate engineering is a tool in the toolbox that, um, the, that we may simply run out of options to keep the planet below particular temperature thresholds. And climate engineering is a way to do that. If you look at a recent National Academy study on climate engineering, they note quite unequivocally that the only known way to cool the planet within a short period of time, say several years, is to change the albedo uh, through injection of, of aerosols uh, into the stratosphere, much like a volcano does. So this is the principal tool in the toolbox, although mm -hmm. it's a rather coarse tool. We don't really know how to do that as, an, as a human experiment. But the notion, if uh, one looks at the, the trajectories of how climate gases are likely to evolve in the coming decades, look at the Paris Agreement, it's hard to get enough confidence to think that we're actually going to do, uh, change our behavior enough to stay on, say, a two-degree uh, course. So, so I then two-degree, flesh that out a bit more? Two-degree from what to when? Two degree being the the increase in global temperatures, that's considered kind of a threshold for deleterious interference in the climate system. It's a somewhat arbitrary threshold, but there needs to be such a threshold that we can talk about. And Lisa Dilling, and you've looked some at um, well some of the treaties and geopolitical consequences and background context. Um, what's your sense of Really, why is this even being considered at such an audacious level? I think you had mentioned before that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change even builds into its assumptions that there will be, there's got to be some kind of geoengineering. Is that right? Right. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. Basically, it's a, one of these ideas that's been really discussed a lot in the scientific community. It has not yet been um, a proposal put on the table by um, governments themselves. I mean, I would say that there's a lot of advocacy going on in the scientific community, as David mentioned, because of the fact that scientists looking at the climate change problem see this, see this trajectory and say, oh my goodness, you know, we may not be able to re reduce um, emissions rapidly enough to prevent dangerous interference with the climate system, which is um, what David was referring to with this two degrees um, threshold. So, um, so it's basically been discussed a lot from a scientific perspective, and one of the interesting things is even some of our um, our scenarios that we rely on to say, well, how how will the climate be changing in the future, and at what what kinds of emissions reductions are needed, and so on. A lot of those scenarios actually build in some degree of especially carbon dioxide removal techniques. They don't build in geoengineering from the stratospheric side that David was talking mm -hmm. about. They do build in though this idea of um, 
technologies coming online that will be removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So whether it's that, from power plants in a more local or regional scale, some kind of removal of CO2, right? Exactly. And, and, the, and the, the thing that's a little bit worrying is that there's a, a great amount of that actually built into these scenarios. So, when, you know, when we look at the scenarios from a you know, perspective of the public looking at what the scientists are saying in terms of where we're headed, um, we, can, we, we actually, um, those scenarios assume that these technologies will be available at scale in a very short period of time and be, be, be quite, um, quite big, like, you know, like big power plants removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But, but to my knowledge so far, basically there's only been very small pilot experiments going on to do things like removal of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. They're not yet at scale at all. And so we're actually on a, we're actually on a trajectory that's almost worse in a way from what our, our models at the moment are predicting because they assume so much of this is coming online when it isn't really yet coming online. So um, that's, just to, that's just from the side of the carbon dioxide removal. Yeah, that's huge. And David? Yeah, I, I think Lisa says it exactly right. The notion, these hidden variables that are in climate scenarios of the future, in particular negative emissions at scale, as they say. And by and, negative emissions, meaning taking CO2 out of the atmosphere somehow, that we put so much in that um, we, need, we need to not only reduce how much we put in the future, but to take some out that's already there. And that's what's uh, frightening, that we don't really have a plan to do that that's meaningful. Yeah. We'll continue. I just want to take a uh, short break. For those who are joining us late, you're listening to KGNU in Denver, Boulder, Fort Collins, and Nederland, and around the globe at KGNU.org. I'm Susan Moran, and we're discussing geoengineering. My guests are Dr. Lisa Dilling. She's an associate professor of environmental studies at CU Boulder and a fellow at Ceres, and Dr. David Fahey, a physicist who directs the chemical sciences division at NOAA in Boulder. Um, so let's continue. And before, I want to get to... Uh, some of the regulatory and governance issues. But first, just a couple concrete examples. I know, Lisa, you said they've mostly been pilot, nothing at large scale. Some, particularly like ocean fertilization, have been largely dismissed anyway. But what are a couple examples of, shall we say, the more credible techniques, approaches that are being looked at now? Uh, David Fahey? Yes. Um, in terms of the stratosphere, again, um, nature has showed us how to cool the planet by uh, with explosive volcanic eruptions injecting uh, huge quantities of sulfur gases in the, into the stratosphere, which then transform into particulate matter that reflects sunlight. And so we've mapped this out as scientists um, quite uh, accurately uh, in the past. And so the thought is, well, let's simulate that. Let's do our own injection with aircraft or balloons of some kind. Uh, again, the, the issue would be scale. Can we actually create a volcanic size uh, um, injection into the stratosphere? So that hasn't been tried, and I'm not sure that they're very detailed plans, but people can conceive of that as being something that could happen if we put our minds to it. Boy, and then even if it could happen, what about issues of mm, international boundaries and treaties and uh, unintended consequences of you inject in one place? What happens when you change yeah. the climate in your neighboring country? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Susan, that when you look at something like uh, geoengineering, it's not just the science. You start with the mm. science, 
And the science includes not only achieving the effect that you might want, but also accounting for the effects that you don't want. And then you back out a little bit further, and science never really solves a problem. It only puts, it provides input into the discussion and policy surrounding a problem. And I think that's one of the main issues in my mind for climate intervention geoengineering is the lack of governance in the world. That we know how to go about environmental treaties to deal mm -hmm. with environmental problems. The Montreal Protocol on substances that deplete ozone is an outstanding example. And so the like relationship. With sulfur dioxide? I'm sorry? With sulfur dioxide and some of the things that had pretty effectively eliminated or reduced? Well, the Montreal Protocol is yeah. for uh, synthetic gases uh, that we put in our refrigerators, et cetera. Right. So, but without a governance structure, then the world doesn't really have a way to create a path forward, and scientists don't have a forum to bring their results to. Yeah, and Lisa Dilling, I want to ask you, I mean, what about some of the social, the human health, and particularly environmental risks that we're talking about. Yeah, and there's, um, as David mentioned, there there hasn't been a lot of actual uh, field tests of these of these research or of these techniques, um, partially because they are quite controversial already. I would say, while we while both of us have been discussing this is this is something perhaps that we need to look at, and from a research perspective, it's already quite um, quite it, it makes people quite con kind of worried in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I've done some research on public perception of of uh, geoengineering techniques and some of the when people haven't heard of this idea at first they they almost get this sort of nervous laughter you know or they sort of go oh really people are thinking of this i mean we have a sort of there's sort of a, a gut reaction that's um a little bit um i guess there's sort of a sense of uh people being a bit nervous about it or thinking well how can we possibly be thinking about deliberately engineering the planet in this way so we don't we i don't think at this point i think governments that do fund research are a little bit trepidatious at the moment moment to fund field tests on this. And um, possibly that's that's a reflection of, you know, democratic processes and being very, um, not not wanting to uh, engage a very controversial topic like that. But there are strong advocates saying we should be doing some research on this. Um, I think some of the things that people really worry about are things like that David mentioned, such as unintended consequences. Um, if we do, if we say, for example, try to cool one particular part of the planet with um, aerosols, say, over the Arctic, right. for example, but then it maybe adjusts or changes somehow the way the monsoon works in India. That's been proposed as possibly an unintended consequence. Um, how do we account for that? We don't really have international mechanisms that are able to weigh all those pluses and minuses in a, in a fair way at the moment. Yeah, and boy. there are a lot of... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, but it's huge. Um, we just have a couple more seconds, actually, so we'll definitely revisit this topic, but I don't want to end without asking you both. Bottom line, let's start with David Fahey. Is geoengineering science's best hope or worst nightmare or somewhere in between? What do you think? <laughs> Some combination thereof. Uh, it really depends on what we do and the scale of what we do it. Um, I like to always end with my favorite adage that science has the first word on everything and the last word on nothing. And so scientists are standing by to help the, this discussion and exactly what we do um, depends on others who aren't scientists. And Lisa Dilling, science's best hope or worst nightmare? <laughs> 
I, I think this is one of those issues that the public and, like David said, people other than scientists really need to weigh in and become aware of and get engaged in because it's honestly up to all of us. It's something we don't know how it's going to work out, and we all need to have a stake and have a, a say in what is, uh, what's going to be happening in the future with this. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the show, Dr. Fahey. Thank you, Susan. And Lisa Dilling, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Dr. Lisa Dilling, an Associate Professor of Environmental Studies at CU Boulder and a fellow at Ceres, and Dr. David Fahey, a physicist at NOAA, and he directs the Chemical Sciences Division at NOAA's Earth System Research Lab. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Susan Moran, and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Chip Granditz. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Traffic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. Thank you.